Hi, this is Maury Moreland Morrison, here to tell you GEICO has more than just great savings. Much more. GEICO's been around for more than 75 years, back when they were using Morse code. Sorry, that's just my sense of humor. What's more, with GEICO, you get 24-7 access to licensed agents on the app, online, or over the phone, so you can talk to them at night or in the morning. So forevermore, just know that no other auto insurer has more more than GEICO. More power to you. GEICO. Expect great savings and a whole lot more. Welcome to CrimeWire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case to CrimeWire or suggest a topic for a future show, please email us at thenewcrimewire at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook at The New Crime Wire. My name is Denny Griffin, and on today's show, my co-host Delilah Jones and I are going to talk with Peter Hyatt. Peter is a statement analyst who teaches deception detection to law enforcement and private businesses. He is also a crime lawyer consultant. He is taught on local, state, and federal levels, including at the FBI Academy. He is the author of several courses, including Advanced Analysis and the book Wise as a Serpent, Gentle as a Dove. Peter leads a team of Elite analysts in monthly training, and the group accepts requests for assistance from law enforcement agencies around the country. He writes at the Statement Analysis blog and occasionally for American Thinker. In addition, Peter works with investigators around the nation as well as the United Kingdom on cold cases and missing persons, among others. His work has been featured on national television and radio. Peter lives in Maine with his wife, Heather. They have six children and two grandchildren. Peter, it's great to have you back on the show. Hey, Denny and Delilah. It's great to be back. Uh, I'd like to begin, Peter, if, you, if we could, by you, having, uh, uh, by you telling our listeners exactly what a statement analyst is, or what they do, and how they do it. Sure. A statement analyst is one who has been trained to detect deception, specifically through the written and then subsequent spoken word, so that in a uh, criminal case, for example, when an allegation is received by law enforcement, um, the accused will be asked to write out a statement of what happened before the interview. And the statement is then analyzed or broken down into small parts to see which words he has chosen to use and it will be seen either as uh, a truthful statement, clearing the innocent, or as a statement with deception, and then on to where the deception lies. The success rate is compared to uh, first to the guess rate. The guess rate is about 50% or flipping a coin. And then there's some other schools of deception detection that can run as high as 70% success rate, which is a good success rate. Statement analysis generally runs at or near 100% accuracy in determining, uh, determining deception from veracity. The only 
uh, area in which we can run into an error is basically when a statement has been contaminated. What this means is that before someone wrote out the statement, they were interviewed, something that um, trends in law enforcement have had good success in reversing. So if someone has been interviewed first, it's going to impact their statement. It could change quite a bit of information, and we call that contamination. Or if the analyst himself or herself has made an error, because it's a systematic or scientific study, we can go back into the analysis, find the error, and correct it. Uh, it's like a, um, a math problem where your answer doesn't match the computer or the calculator's answer. You go back and you can find out where you made that error. This is why I said it, it can run 100% or near 100% accuracy uh, due to this process, due to this scientific repetition, putting it of info, receiving info, and correcting and proofing the work. So it's quite exciting, and uh, at times it can be even a bit controversial. It's not um, evidence in the sense of a forensic evidence given in court. It's not considered a specialty or a special science. It is, however, linguistic evidence that we all use. It, it, the use of statement analysis is inescapable. Everyone does it. So if I say um, we were at the store, by virtue of the word we, you know that I was not alone. And that is a use of statement analysis. That takes place in court all the time. It, it takes place in life all the time. So if statement analysis is inescapable in communication, the question is, are we using it properly or improperly? And so with formal training, law enforcement, business professionals, and others can learn to consistently detect deception within a statement. From there, and you can imagine, Denny, in the – your own background in law enforcement, uh, being given a case, and before the case even begins, you know who did it, when he did it, how he did it, and why he did it. And then to begin <laughs> your investigation that way, yeah, it's just saved you a great deal of time. It saves money um, and quite a few other elements of savings that are in there. So basically it is to determine if someone is deceptive, which is the basic concept of the detecting deception, but then from there it moves into content analysis, what happened, when it happened, how it happened, why it happened, onto what's called psycholinguistic profiling. What that is, is the ultimate end of statement analysis is this, is that when we speak, our words reveal four things about us. Our words reveal our background, our experiences, our priority and even our personality. So in law enforcement, as in business and so many other schools where this is needed, when someone speaks, you know what their priority is, what their personality is like. So if you want someone that is going to be uh, on your sales force, and you need a real people person, we'll see this before it begins. If you're a police department hiring, uh, uh, Dallas is a city now that has a need to hire several hundred police officers. Too many have left in too short a time under the, the scourge of uh, what I call the war on police today. We are able to screen out those who are most likely to become violent unnecessarily. 
and we're able to spot those who have the higher skills of de-escalation, who, if in fire, need to use violence, will use it in a judicial proper way, a restrained way, only when necessary. So it's really quite powerful going beyond just be able to determine if someone is deceptive or not. It goes into so much more in our advanced work. And that can be quite useful uh, in a criminal investigation, even knowing the personality of the person you're about to interview. Uh, you're right, Peter. I was, I, as you're talking, I've, I've been thinking about, of course, I'm going back several years. I've been retired for quite a while, but uh, of how nice it would have been uh, to go into an investigation knowing a lot of the answers. Uh, or having a path to follow uh, and some ideas, you know, where you're going and, and where you should concentrate. Um, uh, now, statement analyst probably isn't a term that's a household term or name, if you will. Um, how how does the word get out? In other words, do you, how would people know about you? Would you uh, would, is it word of mouth? Do you advertise maybe in police uh, magazines or something? Or how do how do people get to learn about what you can do in your services? Well, success is the best publicity, and um, what happens is on a very small and organic scale, a police officer will read a about a story or a blog entry, and in it. Uh, I will show how this person gave a, a verbal indicator of guilt. And then later on, the person's arrested and the police officer says, you know, I'd like to learn that. I've had the, the retraining, for example, at my academy, and um, I've had a lot of different training and interviewing, but I sure would like to know when someone's lying. Now, that's a desire that um, most Americans, most people have. The reason being is because a liar holds us in contempt, and we don't like that. The liar says, you're an idiot. I'm smarter than you. Therefore, I'm going to pitch you this lie, and you're going to buy it. And when people realize they've been lied to, the, the reaction is emotional. It's, it's uh, insulting. Liars, by nature of what they do, hold the rest of us in contempt. We like and want to hear the truth. We don't want the insult of lies. And so the the police officer may contact me and, and enroll in training. Inevitably, a, a case will come up, and this is where it gets very exciting and quite addicting. We all want to be able to tell if someone's lying in romance, in business, in investigations, in hiring, in therapy, in counseling, in everything we want to know if someone is lying to us. Well, there are times, Denny, where um, – the analysis will show something contrary to the evidence. And that is where it gets rather exciting. And I'm thinking in particular of a case from a couple of years ago that's really kind of neat. Do I, do I have time to share this? Certainly. Okay. Um, I was conducting a training um, for law enforcement in the southern part of the United States when um, a cold case investigator said, on day two of our training, would you be willing to look at um, a 911 call for me? He said, it's only two or three minutes in length, and I'd love your opinion on it. He knew that from the day of training previously that 
if we're going to analyze a, a statement, we do not want to know any case details. It's not for entertainment purposes or effect. It does have a quite a amazing effect on people, but that's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is I don't want to be influenced by what I know about a case. So I said to him, I'll be glad to do it. Um, when I get back home to Maine, I will analyze it and send you the results. And the department that was hosting it, their captain, um, a very intelligent, well-trained man, he was trained at the FBI's National Academy. And so he had a full, state, a full semester of discerning deception uh, from really top professionals. So he was excited. He said, Peter, I'd like you to do it now. And I said, well, I've got an entire day agenda to cover, and it will take me five or six hours to do. I prefer to do it back in Maine, and then I'll send a report to this fellow, and that'll be it. And he gently reminded me of who was paying me, and um, <laughs> they put the the transcript up on the uh, overhead projector. And for the next four, five, six hours, we went through this 911 call. The allegation was uh, the reason for the call. A man came home from work and found his girlfriend and her son dead from gunshot wounds. And the case was thus investigated. The 911 call was only a few minutes in length, but it took to examine each and every word probably six hours in total, including working through lunch. This was my conclusion. The words of the caller tell me, A, he killed them both. B, here's when he did it. C, he has a background of domestic violence. Whether or not you find convictions makes no difference. He has harmed women, and if you carefully examine his background, you will find collateral interviews saying, yo, yeah, he's threatened me or he's hurt me or that. He has the same with children, child abuse. Whether or not it's official um, makes no difference to me. It's in there, and there's a disdain of children there as well. And I said he did it at such and such a time. He did it for greed, and I don't know what the greed is over, but the element of the motivation for his crime is greed. So he did it. Here's his history. Here's when he did it. Here's his motive. And the cold case detective, I saw a little smirk on his face. He then shared with the the group of investigators um, the case file, but not beforehand. And so photographic evidence and the blood spatter and um, all sorts of different parts of evidence were presented. But then he said the subject that Mr. Hyatt is saying is guilty has fully cooperated, has been cleared, the coroner satisfied, the DA satisfied, and he passed his polygraph. So how certain was I of the conclusion I gave? And I said, I stake my career on it. He did it. He has overwhelmed me in this statement. He has not just hinted at it. He has overwhelmed me, overwhelmed my opinion I began with the presupposition that he didn't do it and that he was 
cooperative and innocent. I didn't know any of the details about the polygraph or the coroner, that sort of thing. So the investigator said the DA will not reopen a case unless the coroner is willing to reclassify the cause of death in homicide unknown. I said, well, I'll send a report to the um, the coroner. The coroner read the report, reclassified it, sent it to the DA. The DA reopened it. The subject was arrested. And we had thought there was going to be a plea bargain um, due to some details that had come out during this second investigation. But the subject, a, a very strong narcissistic personality type, refused the plea bargain, even though it, it um, was probably in his best interest, and even testified on his own behalf. And then a um, Two years have gone by at this point from the time I was involved, and just a week or so ago, he was found guilty of both murders. What we learned was not only did the background show the personality type, but what I did not know was that when he said there were two dead bodies in my house, when he called it my house, I assumed that he owned the house but that this was not only unnecessary, but inappropriate for him to say, because while the two dead bodies, and they should have been people, were in his home, he was taking ownership of it. What I learned afterwards was this was accurate. He did not own the home. He had attempted to coerce the owner, his girlfriend, into signing over the title deed to him. She refused. He killed her. So this is one of those type of cases where what is known about the case and some of the external case, including the the evidence, non-submissible, of a polygraph and his own cooperation and the opinions of experts was against the analysis. And that's a tough bill. I have a lot of confidence in polygraphs. If a polygraph is given by an experienced polygraph examiner or polygrapher who only uses the subject's own language and doesn't contaminate it beforehand – that thing is foolproof. It is not going to be fooled. There's no such animal as Hannibal Lecter who can just be so sociopathic that he feels no guilt. The most sociopathic in society don't want to be caught. They do feel anxiety over being caught. They do not wish to be seen as a liar, and they do have physiological reactions to that type of stress. So to stand up against um, – this is the argument. You know nothing about this case other than a two- or three-minute phone call, and you're standing up against an entire investigation with more than 20 years' experience uh, of the investigators collectively against the evidence that's been determined against all the interviews. You have access to none of this stuff, and you're saying his words are so convincing that you base your career on it. And all I could say is, yeah, he talked me into it. Overwhelmingly, the um, there's kind of a comical additional to this whole thing. But um, before I get to that, Denny, there was, and Delilah, you'll appreciate this. The victim for the last four or five years, the victim's family has had to live with the slander and libel that she had killed her own child. And she was, by all reports, a very good mother, a very loving mother, a mother who cared for her son. And family had to endure this for four or five years was reversed by the conviction. 
this is what the dedication of an investigator who stayed with it and a district attorney who remained open and a coroner who engaged his intellect and said, you know what, There's, I need to put this back into question. Um, they obtained justice for the, the victims, but more so for the family members left behind who now could claim a rehabilitation of their loved one's reputation, including the victim's mom, her own mother, who had to endure four to five years of that type of against her own daughter. So that, that's, it's a point of great emotion and beauty that law detection was able to serve and, and obtain. The comical part of it all is that when I was doing the seminar, um, I get a little nervous in front of people speaking. Um, it had gone well day one, and I was more comfortable doing this work at home, quietly alone, or with a, a, a team of a couple trusted analysts online with me, doing it with me. Because what we must do in this type of advanced work is, sounds a little bit schizophrenic. We allow the words to opinion, which means at any given point, we're going to make proclamation. We're going to say, this guy is innocent, or an anonymous threatening letter, this is clearly a female writer. The next sentence, this is clearly a male. The next sentence, this is clearly an older person. The next sentence, this is a young person. We sound like crazy people. <laughs> you have to have a personality that is not afraid of being wrong in front of others in order to get it right. And so knowing that this is how it must be done, I've got a class of 20 or 25 detective investigators with anywhere between you know, five or 10 years experience and 30 years experience, each of them putting a culmination of hundreds of years of experience. And I don't even know them. And if one bristles when they're wrong, it really, it doesn't work well. You've got to be willing to be wrong to get it right. So I expressed that concern to the, the hosting captain. And I said, I'd really rather do it later and a little squeaky voice from behind the crowd of men said do it now peter <laughs> and i looked through the crowd and there was my wife it was heather <laughs> with a smile on her face and i gave her a look that only a, a husband and wife can communicate one to another as if to say are you crazy <laughs> so the last couple of years she has always said but I believe in your work. I believe in your work. And I, we said, but why would you put me on the, the spot like that in front of so many people? And her answer was always, because I believe in you. Well, as I was recounting this part of the story, um, I was invited to, to speak at the FBI National Academy in October, um, where the, the work is so impressive there. It's, it's just – it brings back a, a pride in American law enforcement. But while I was recounting this to one of the classes, my wife said, well, you know, I've always said I believe in you, but I also saw the first line of the call where he said that he wanted to report a double murder. He had already jumped to the conclusion, Peter. I knew that you would nail it. <laughs> so the last couple of years I've been thinking of her marvelous unconditional support of me has turned into no it was quite conditional she saw the first line and she knew <laughs> that someone in that type of shock and trauma is not going to call in the first thing out of their mouth is not going to be i need to report a double murder 
<laughs> she knew she knew that deception was going to be in the statement. So although uh, it's um, comical, it is a, a testimony to um, Denny and Delilah, a belief that is eternal, where from the abundance of a person's heart, from, from where they think and where they feel, where their intellect and their emotions meet, the words are going to reveal this. And this is what this man did. He revealed himself through his words, something that we all do. So when that becomes learned, there's going to be departments are going to ask for assistance and ask for training. And that's, that's what happens. So this oh. word of mouth, it just spread that way. Peter, let me ask you this. Uh, th- this case we're talking about with the 911 call and the uh, the, the double uh, murder. Um, when the, this defendant was actually found guilty by trial uh, and you got the word, how did you feel? Uh, I, I just can't imagine what it must have been like to get that news after you had gone against uh, other experts, the polygraph, and so forth, uh, because of your belief in in your own work, uh, what was the feeling like to hear that this guy was convicted? That's a great question. My um, my feelings were muted for very good reason. Um, what I had done in the last two years, including at the FBI's National Academy, was present the 911 call to some of our our country's best law enforcement investigators and superiors. Now, at the National Academy, um, the instructors are just something special, and um, particularly one man is is so acutely in touch with deception that even those in attendance, 20 years' experience in murder investigations in Detroit was one young woman. Um, I presented it for the purpose of looking for one person who would dissent from the opinion. And in the last two years, I've done this repeatedly. Is there any one of you who sees it differently? And not once in what amounted to 23 months of being in touch with some of the best and brightest law enforcement around the country and in Europe, not once did anyone say, I think you need to rethink that, or, well, maybe. There was no equivocation, no dissenting opinion, not in the FBI, not in um, HIDA, the high-intensity drug trafficking area training, um, not among anyone who has really... um, great skills and great education. So I expected it. What my concern was and my emotion was more for the cold case investigator because um, cold case investigators are not always popular. It's a really tough position to be in because if a case is unsolved, for example, those who initially investigated it may or may not be pleased that it is solved. It may, they may feel like their work is being indicted, and not everyone shares the same drive for justice. And not every case is just considered a, a cold case. They're also closed cases, and this was a closed case. 
this was one that he felt this particular investigator, 30 years experience, when he had heard the 911 call, he didn't understand why it bothered him technically. When he enrolled in training, it made all the sense in the world. It's like, oh, that's why it bothered me. And a lot of law enforcement have great intuition. They, they just don't have the words to express why they know something is wrong or amiss. Well, this was a closed case, meaning that the original investigators were satisfied with the finding. And so I was concerned about him because um, he is a, a team investigator. He's a team player. And um, I think it was a very tough investigation in 24 months for him. So there was a sense of relief for him, just an honorable and good man who may have been at odds with some of his compatriots. It's not always that everyone is of the same opinion on the same team. And what he did and he learned training was, if you disagree with me, show me where you think I've gone wrong. Just show me where. We have in our country a dearth of critical thinking. And as everyone knows that nature abhors a vacuum. Where there is not a mo uh, critical thinking, there is a replacement with emotions. And so um, if I were to say to you, Denny Delilah, it is sunny out here in Maine, and you look at your map and you see it snowing, and I say to you, if you disagree with me, you are full of irrational fear. You have phobia. You have a hatred of me. You hate me. You're, you're full of hatred. In fact, I'm so morally superior to you that I don't even want to hear your opinion. This is what happens when our emotions become uh, in charge of things. People that disagree with us today, and this, our politicians use this to exploit in using deception. You don't agree with me? You're a racist. You're a homophobic. You're a xenophobic. You are deplorable. You are morally reprehensible. You're not worth here, being here at an opinion. What it does is it shouts down the difference. So there's always the possibility at any given time that we become so emotionally attached to something that we can push aside critical thinking. That's why in statement analysis, it's so important. The top professionals in this country at detecting deception always ask for second opinions, always show a willingness to be corrected. Um, in speaking with one of the detection deception experts who teaches at the FBI Academy, he sounded like a little kid at Christmas, excited to learn. He's at the top of his game. He's at the top of his craft. Yet he's like a child at Christmas, eagerly grabbing onto new ideas and new thoughts. And it's very inspiring. It's, it's marvelously inspiring. And this type of work breeds its own humility, where um, we love to have our work examined. We love to have our work checked. Someone always sees something deeper in it. Um, if there's an error, we can find it, we can correct it, we can make it right. Um, but there's a, a sense of team that goes on in this type of work that really produces some high-level responses from, from really some of our best around the country. And it's exciting. When someone says in derision, oh, that's junk science, <laughs> there's something that we do to that type of, of skeptic. We say, oh. If this indeed is junk science, 
then we obviously need to abandon it because no one wants to be on the wrong side of things. So I'll tell you what. You sit down and you write out a statement of your last day off where you were home, did not travel. So it'll have lots of detail. It must be truthful. Please be advised that the statement you submit is going to be analyzed, and I can guarantee you, you will reveal personal information that you did not intend to reveal, and some of it may be embarrassing. I have yet to have an investigator who took up this offer who did not sign up for training. <laughs> it's just one of those powerful things. It's, we all do it. We all give ourselves away by our words. So there is this um, element within resistance that divorces itself from critical thinking. So, Denny, I disagree with you because I don't like the way your hair looks. And you say, well, Peter, what about the points? I don't care about the points. Look at your hair. And I go on to this wild tangent that is absurd, and it avoids answering the argument. That is something that has become powerful in deception in our country when millions of people fall into line and say things that are not true just because they feel morally superior. It's, it's, a, it's been appealing to their moral narcissism. We have um, eventually going to look at the McCann case, the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. And it's so fascinating to read people's opinions about the case. And most people, especially in the United Kingdom, are angry about it because they felt from the beginning they were being lied to. And the more they felt they were being lied to, the more the McCanns went on television and kind of in your face kept this going. There are still those, however, who upon hearing or reading analysis, their only response is, you need to stop hating the McCanns, of which I'll respond and say, well, what do you disagree about with the analysis? Stop hating. Is there any point you wish to examine? Stop hating. And it becomes a compulsion where someone feels that they post on social media enough times that you have to stop hating that somehow you'll wake up one day and go, golly gee, I need to stop hating. McCann's must be telling the truth because I have hatred. It's that absurd. Whereas <laughs> in this particular case, someone else had put in a very strong argument against analysis in the form of a challenging question of which I wrote back and then responded with more analysis that healthy scrutiny is always useful. It's always productive. And this person has made a very good and valid objection that needs to be answered. And then I explained how in the analysis itself this was something that was taken into consideration and how it's always taken into consideration and then went back to some other points to show here's how it worked out. That type of healthy scrutiny um, is what produced America. We used to politically debate things because we debated ideas. And now it's either – if you don't like idea A, you must be a very bad person. So therefore, there'll be no hearing of your opinion. That doesn't hold well for truth, truth seekers. We become almost dissociated from the, from the 
narrative behind the statement. We just want to know if the person's telling the truth or not. We don't care whether or not they have blue eyes or brown eyes or dark skin or light skin. We just want to know if they're telling the truth. And it frees us to get into some very deep and powerful points that can withstand all the scrutiny. And that's a good thing because justice demands it. Uh, Peter, let me let me ask you this. We're talking about training. Um, about how much, uh, how many hours or sessions or whatever does a, uh, a trainee need to learn enough to be effective in statement analysis? How, how much time is required uh, in, the, in the training or learning process? That, too, is a great question. Um, we do have levels of certification that have a minimum number of hours. For example, um, if someone is to take a, a course in statement analysis, it would be similar to taking a full semester in college, but every class is dedicated to one particular study. Then, on top of that, we have a minimum of 60 hours of live ongoing training then on top of that, we have approval that's necessary from three different levels, a professional on the federal level, um, and that can be anything from the FBI, the State Department, other, other professionals on a state level, and also someone in the uh, civil realm, which could be civil realm, which could be someone who is a, a therapist or a human resource professional or someone that is non-law enforcement, their approval is necessary in the submission of work. So that's going to be, a, you know, a, a, there are a minimum of two years of, of intense work. Now, the encouraging part is that, let's say if a, a law enforcement official who is in patrol, which many people start there in patrol, better their career and prepare for the future. If he enrolls in the class, he has now the support not only of of me personally, but of other professionals, so that if he is assigned a case tomorrow and he's only in the, in the course for one week and he gets a statement, we guarantee him the submission of that statement analysis will not be in error because we will check his work. So um, it, it's kind of neat because they, the promotions eventually come, and when they come, we all rejoice together. A uh, detective is... A, a, a patrolman is given a um, a case of theft. He has begun our training, so he knows don't interview this fella. Have him write out a statement. He wrote out a statement, and we helped the new patrol, new enrollee, analyze the statement. And we showed he stole. Here's when he did it. Here's how he did it. Here's how to interview him in a legally sound, non-intrusive way using only his words. Said patrol officer, he finds out who did it, how did it, when he did it. He gets a confession or an admission because he used the subject's own words. People have a very difficult time resisting their own words. And this becomes known, and he is now infueled with enthusiasm for more study. What that sometimes translates into is that his boss who said, no, our department can't afford to pay for your training, says, submit the invoice. We're going to pay for your training. 
someone else sees that and says, hey, I've got a tough case. I can't seem to solve it. Would you mind looking at this statement for us? And so he looks at the statement. He sends it to us. We work it with him. He understands how we got it, um, taking him through the process, and he now helps someone else with that success. And success is its best promoter. So it's very exciting. So someone doesn't have to say, well, I'm not going to be a certified analyst for two years, and I don't know if I want to commit that much of time. The success can start immediately. Um, we have a, an investigator now who just – she has marvelous intuitive skills, and the discipline of analysis is coming upon her, and she is doing marvelous work, and it's getting recognition in her small department and the next step is going to be, as they, they find out, is that permission will be granted to help other departments. People like success. People like this type of work. And so it becomes really very exciting. And then when I receive an email, dear Peter, I was just promoted, and I want a credit statement analysis and the work that we've all done together, um, the reward is amazing. It's really marvelous. Uh, Peter, we're we're starting to get short on time. There's two other things I wanted to get to before we run out. First of all, uh, would you uh, be willing to give us, uh, the listeners, any contact information? If you have a business phone number you'd like to give out or a website, uh, I know you have a very uh, impressive blog site that, that I would encourage people to go to. So any information you'd care to share with the audience, please do. Sure, www.hyattanalysis.com. And there you can inquire about uh, training opportunities, seminars to attend. Um, I believe most effective is the at-home training because the lectures are the same as a seminar, except they're recorded, so you can listen to them over and over and over. The one thing I can't do anything about is the processing of time. No matter how intelligent someone is, no matter how talented someone is, no matter how hard they work, they can't succeed without experience. It takes time. We all have a dulled listening that we all do, and it takes time to reverse that. So um, even though you might get, ex get excited about the first week of training and by three months you're doing marvelous work, it's going to be very different at the two-year mark. It just we can't replace time. At the two-year mark is when people begin to go from statement analysis to discourse analysis. They're now hearing deception live or hockey players call on the fly. They, they're hearing it live, and that's an exciting change. And just to, to verify, Hyatt, uh, the, when you're in your site URL, is H-Y-A-T-T. So if uh, you're going to be entering that or Googling or whatever uh, audience you need to spell the name H-Y-A-T-T. Uh, now, the, the last thing I'd like to get to, Peter, is a case that has intrigued me uh, and no doubt in my mind that you have probably taken a look at it. And due to time constraints, I, we can't get into a lot of detail, but um, there's a case of a guy named Nathan Carmen. And on September 8th of this year, Carmen, who was 22, and his mother, Linda, 54, were reported missing after heading out on a fishing trip from the waters of Point Judith in Rhode Island. Uh, he was subsequently found on a raft 
but there's been no sign of the mother. And uh, he's uh, he's given a few interviews and so forth and was interviewed by the Coast Guard, I believe, about that. Uh, could you just give us kind of an overview, a brief overview of your opinion of this and and where Mr. Carmen stands based on what he said? Yes, when he was contacted after eight days at sea by the Coast Guard, this is in essence a 911 call. Um, Nathan, what happened? The Coast Guard official asked him. When he spoke and gave his answer, he has indicated via the lens of statement analysis for deception. He's not telling the truth about what happened to his mother. Um, in fact, his mother, in his language, is deceased. Now, he has Asperger's, which is really fascinating. I had worked for about just four years cumulatively with adults with developmental disabilities. Two of those years was as an investigator into allegations of abuse, neglect, and exploitation. So I'm familiar with adults with developmental disabilities, but Asperger's was one of them that um, is quite different because the Asperger's often are highly intelligent and will have almost an emotional disconnect. We can see that in the language. And this one fits the bill. They often have a history of violence and a preoccupation with death. What's fascinating about this case is that several years ago, his grandmother died of cancer. His grandfather was then shotgunned or shot to death. And Nathan was a suspect in his grandfather's murder. His grandfather was worth about $40 million. He then left a will dividing $10 million to each of his four daughters. Nathan's mother is one of them. Nathan's mother is gone. Nathan has now the sole heir to that money. When Nathan went to describe his relationship with his grandfather within his language, and it's some points of advanced analysis, there are signals that Nathan also killed his grandfather, which is consistent with some of the violence that we see early on with Asperger sufferers. Nathan is very intelligent, um, above average intelligence, very focused, and uh, within both statements, including the Coast Guard and statements he made in the press, he shows deception about his mother and his grandfather's death. So it, it, with oh. more detail, a fascinating case. I know we're constrained by time, though. Uh, uh, just to close out, then, do you do you think that the uh, that he's free and clear on this, or do you think additional investigation may result in some type of uh, charges? I think there'll be charges. There, the investigators are strong, intelligent investigators. They they know what they're doing. What's difficult for them is convincing a district attorney to go ahead with charges while no body is found. Nathan made very certain that the deep sea fishing was quite a, quite a distance away, and someone that's so aware of his surroundings and the coordinates, he would only give a vague description about where that body could be. So um, they'd have to prosecute without a body at this point. Uh, uh, okay, uh, before we close out, uh, Delilah, do you have any uh, questions or comments for Peter? Yeah, on a lighter note, you know, I've known Peter for several years, and love what you do i mean your your analysis is always so spot on and uh very in-depth and very good you know, my question is this 
when you're having a conversation with somebody, because of the way you're linguistically chained or trained, can you pick up stuff as you're having a, a conversation? Does it just pop out to you? Yes. Uh, in fact, it, what, investi- what analysts find that after a certain number of years have passed in training, they can't turn it off. It's just a, something that they they either will attempt not to listen or they're going to listen critically. But the the, the detecting of deception, although it doesn't have the accuracy rate of sitting down slowly going through a statement, is still quite high. So, yes, the deception is, is readily picked up. That's interesting. So everybody be careful what you say to Peter. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting with that is um, I encourage those that are trained to put their certification on the wall to preempt others from lying to them. But oftentimes a, a habitual liar, if you say to the habitual liar, I am an expert at detecting deception, I will know if you're lying. Pathological or habitual liar is still going to lie. <laughs> they just can't it's help themselves. Just, huh? Yeah, it's just too many years in the personality. They, they, just, they believe themselves so much smarter than others. They have such contempt for others. They're going to lie. The downside and, is that there's always hearing about uh, broken marriages and broken lives and abused children. And um, even an average adult speaking can reveal without realizing their own history of childhood sexual abuse, for example, or um, a terrible vacancy within their own heart. And this comes out in the language. You know, it's like the therapist. Peter says, seems to have cut out there. It's like the therapist who, who says, how many times does this person tell me how cold it is in Maine before I realize they're lonely? Do I still have you? Yeah. Yes, you cut out for a, a second there. Okay. So, yeah, it, it there's a downside as well. There's kind of a, a sadness to knowing some of the things that sometimes we wish we didn't know. <laughs> uh, okay, unfortunately, we is, we got to wrap it up here. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for being uh, with us today and sharing your expertise in the fascinating, and I do mean that fascinating, realm of statement analysis. Also, thanks to our listeners. And until next time, stay safe. And, and Peter, we'll be uh, talking with you again shortly. Thank you. Thank you, Delilah. Geico than saving you money. Geico also gives you 24-7 access to licensed agents online, on the phone, or on the Geico app. And while I am a mighty elf queen, I am also a mighty big fan of barbecue potato chips. Minion! More smoky mesquite. Geico. Expect great savings and a whole lot more.